Hello, hello. How are we? Good morning. Thanks, Mike. Uh, good morning, guys. As, uh, as Mike just read, we're going to be in Psalm 14 this morning. And Psalm 14 is a really uh, unique psalm uh, because it kind of reads like a, a cautionary tale. Uh, like these stories that you were told growing up that teach you, you know, how to act, how to behave. Some of you may still share these stories with your kids. So think of things like the little boy who cried wolf or uh, the tortoise and the hare or Little Red Riding Hood. These are all these cautionary tales that, that teach kids not to lie or not to be too confident in themselves and not to uh, talk to strangers. That's what Little Red Riding Hood's all about. If you're wandering alone in the woods with a big picnic basket and you're defenseless, don't talk to a wolf you don't know who's hungry because then he'll, he'll eat you, he'll eat your picnic basket, and he'll also eat your granny who you told him was very sick and defenseless as well. So don't talk to strangers. That's kids' stories are great. So if those cautionary tales aren't dark enough, uh, my parents growing up had a real knack for sort of making them up on the fly and telling me these cautionary tales in order to teach me the importance of taking a bath or not wandering off while we're shopping at a department store. Rest in peace to all those department stores. Um, So for instance, I used to hate taking a bath. I just, I was a real hyper kid and I loved playing all day and I just did not want to take a bath. And so one day I was like, mom, dad, why do I have to take a bath? They said, they they didn't even, I don't know if they rehearsed this. This just came to them. They said, you know, Pigpen from Charlie Brown, you know, that kid, he's from Charlie Brown. He's got the dirt cloud all over him. He's got all these flies flying all over him. He doesn't take baths. Let me ask you this, Timothy, that's my name. Timothy, have you ever seen Pigpen go spend the night at Charlie Brown's house? (laughs) No, I haven't. Because he doesn't take a bath. And Charlie Brown wants nothing to do with Pigpen. He's just being nice. But really, he hates Pigpen. He don't want to be anywhere near him. He smells awful. Ever seen Charlie Brown go over to Pigpen's house? No. Because it smells bad too. Because Pigpen doesn't take a bath. If you want to go hang out with friends, have friends want to hang out with you, you ought to take a bath. So I was terrified. And so yeah, I took baths. By the time I was in high school, I took like six showers a day. Just wanted some friends. Uh, I also remember going to a big department store. What I like to do, I think a lot of kids uh, do this. I think we we're in Dillard's. I would run through the clothes racks and I would kind of pop out and try to scare my parents. And so one time I, I popped out and no one was there. And our family was gone. And so, of course, I like cried, freaked out. And a real nice Dillard's employee went and, you know, got me, paged, uh, you know, over the intercom, come pick up your crying kid. It's very loud. And so my parents came and got me, uh, which was great. And once we were reunited, you would have thought, you know, they'd say something like, we don't want to lose you, don't wander off from us because we love you. This is what they told me, which is great. You know, that lady wanted to feed you to her dogs. <laughs> I was like, what? Ruth? She was real sweet. They're like, no, you never know. That's what she made you think. But you never know who's going to want to take you home and feed you to their dogs. So don't wander off. And so I didn't. I stayed real close, okay? But my favorite little cautionary tale that they made up on the fly ever was we would go to this uh, Japanese restaurant. And if you've ever been to a Japanese restaurant, a lot of times they only have one dessert. And it's green tea ice cream. Okay, green tea ice cream. And as a kid, it was like this, wow, this is the only place that has this. It must be in limited supply. And so I always wanted it. 
And like I said, I was already a hyper kid. My parents didn't want me to have any ice cream. They want to stay later. They're not going to get, you know, pay six bucks for green tea ice cream. They're not going to sit there and just watch me eat green tea ice cream. So I was like, hey, I want some green tea ice cream. And they're like, no, you do not. You want to go home. And I was like, no, I really want some green tea ice cream. They're like, well, you know, Timothy, you know what green tea ice cream really is? It's like, I do not. Even though it's in the name, I had no idea. I said, I don't know. Please enlighten me, loving parents. They told me, you know Kermit the Frog? Well, well, here's what they did. They went and found Kermit, and they killed him, threw him in a blender, blended him up, stuck him in the freezer, and put him on the menu. Are you sure you want to get that for dessert? I was like crying. I was like, of course not. So if you've ever wondered, looking at me, you think there's something off about that Tim guy. Absolutely. There's a lot of stuff wrong here, uh, but for the grace of God. And now you know why, which is great. Our text today is actually sort of a cautionary tale, okay? A cautionary psalm, per se. Not as weird as the ones from my childhood, but cautionary all the same, meaning that Psalm 14 is going to introduce us to a character, much like the boy who cried wolf, Little Red Riding Hood, someone whose example we ought not to follow. We ought to learn from their mistakes. And here's going to be the main takeaway, all right? Do not reject the word of God. That's the main takeaway of the psalm. That is what he's trying to teach in the psalm. <clears throat> Do not reject the word of God. Because as you'll see in the life of the fool, this main character we're going to be talking about today, rejecting the word of God does not ultimately satisfy. On the contrary, you gain nothing by rejecting the word of God but destruction. So that's the point of our psalm this morning. Uh, And so I think that's it. Now we can sing and go home, right? That's the whole thing. Let's pray uh, because we've got a lot of work to do. Let's pray. Um, Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you are good. Uh, We thank you that you have shown us grace in your son. I pray that we would embrace that gospel today. Lord, I pray that we would embrace um, the goodness of who you are. As uh, was preached two weeks ago, um, that we would see your word as more valuable than gold. Um, Lord, that we would treasure the word of God. Uh, We cannot do this apart from your grace. We cannot do this apart from your spirit. So we pray uh, that you would give us grace. You'd give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that love you and your kingdom and treasure the gift of Christ. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, Psalm 14, beginning with the title. It says, to the choir master of David. Now, this is just telling us that this psalm was written by David. And it was written explicitly to be used in the context of corporate worship of Israel. And so that's what what it meant when he writes to the choir master. And we mentioned a few times that the choir master is sort of this worship leader, this worship guy, the official worship guy of Israel. And so that's what David's doing. He's written this song, he's given it to Israel's worship guy, and he said, go and lead the entire congregation in singing this song. And here's how the song goes. I don't know, the lyrics are kind of (laughs) weird. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. And so here we meet this character of this cautionary tale, the fool. And typically when we call someone a fool or we call someone foolish, it's kind of a knock on that person's intelligence, right? It's kind of like calling them stupid, you know? But that's not what David means here. He means something very different. Instead, this word that we translate as fool means an extremely wicked person, an extremely wicked person. This foolishness is more about how he acts rather than how he thinks. 
And so this is someone whose deeds are wicked, and specifically to the point of making life miserable for everybody around them. That's who David is picturing here. <clears throat> but lest you think David's just going to be ranting about someone he doesn't like for seven verses, this fool isn't actually a specific person, but rather a, a representative, a, a stand-in for a certain group of people David calls evildoers. So just think of the fool as sort of the, uh, like a mascot. You know, if all the evildoers had a football team, their mascot would be the fool or the Baylor Bears, right? So right from the get-go, we know this guy is going to be a rough dude. And they'd be right because David says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's a rough start. They're corrupt, uh, not so nice. They do abominable deeds and there's none who does good. So yeah, it doesn't sound like fun. The language here is pretty intense. They're corrupt, which literally means rotten or spoiled. Like if you leave milk in the fridge too long, they're rotten, they're spoiled, they've been corrupted and they do wicked things. They are not good. But notice that where this corruption and this wickedness begins. The corruption and the wickedness begins in the heart. It says the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, if you were to go Google Psalm 14, you would find tons of sermons with a title like, you know, refuting atheism or the foolishness of atheism. And I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but this is not going to be a sermon about refuting the errors of atheism because that's not what David's talking about. He's not talking about atheism. That's a modern phenomenon. It's very hard to find any atheists in the ancient Near East uh, because people in the ancient Near East tended to, at the very least, believe in some God, but much more likely, a whole pantheon of gods. So don't think modern 21st century atheism. So then what does he mean to, for someone to say in their heart, there is no God? And here's what David means. They reject the word of God and how they live. They reject the word of God and how they live. It's less about how they think and more about how they act. And they live as if God's commands are irrelevant. So it's like if you've ever heard someone describe a person as godless, this godless person. It's like they act in such a way that there's no sort of moral law. They have no sort of moral conscience governing their life. And they appear to be driven by a belief that there's no one to whom they will have to give an account as if God somehow cannot see their wicked acts. And so that's what it means to say in your heart, there is no God. It's to live in such a way that says, I don't care what God has commanded. And we see similar language throughout the Psalms, specifically Psalm 10, which uh, some believe is actually an intro to our Psalm this morning, to Psalm 14. Psalm 10 uh, verses three through four say, for the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God, this wicked person. And the psalm continues. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He's a bad dude, right? It says the helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God's forgotten. God has forgotten. He's hidden his face. He'll never see it. So the fool is someone who lives and acts in such a way that rejects the word of God and the commands of scripture. And that's exactly what David says. They're corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There's none who does good. People like the fool are corrupt. They do what God commands us not to do. And they're not even sad about it. 
They don't regret it. There's no remorse. There's no repentance. They simply do evil and say, what's God going to do? He doesn't care. I don't see him around. He's not going to do anything. He's forgotten. He's hidden his face. This is actually similar to something that my, my kids will do sometimes. You know, they don't, the helpless don't fall by their might, according to the psalm. But I still have, they can, they can cause a lot of damage, my children. I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old. And sometimes uh, they'll go into their room, they share a room, and they have a bunk bed, and they have lots of fun, and it's real sweet. But sometimes they'll go into their room, and they'll close the door so that they can do whatever they want. They'll be laughing, ha, 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 and I hear them run down the hall, and I hear that door close. I know iniquity. They are <laughs> up to something. And we have this rule that they're not supposed to be up on, you know, uh, my two-year-old's not supposed to be up on the top bunk when we're uh, not in there. But especially, they shouldn't jump on the top bunk and so all of a sudden, I'll hear that door close, and I hear giggling, laughing, jumping on the bunk. They're like pushing each other on the bunk. It's like a baby fight club up on the top bunk. And the whole time they're thinking, there is no mom. There is no dad. Who can stop us? Now, what they don't know is we, we have a baby monitor, and we see everything. We know exactly what's happening, but they're not aware. They're saying, they've forgotten. They don't know what's going on here. God does not see Mom and dad do not, do not hear. And so this is what the fool's doing. He's living as if God has given no commands and living as if there's no consequences for breaking them. And now before we move into verse two, there's something really important to recognize here in verse one. And here's what it is. The fool's wickedness is rooted in bad theology. The fool's belief in his heart, the fool's wickedness is rooted in bad theology. Theology. He begins with this false belief that God doesn't see as evil, that God isn't going to do anything about it, or that God doesn't care. And so then as a result, he rejects what God commands. He does abominable things. He is corrupt. And I mean, why wouldn't you? If it's true that God doesn't care whether you obey his word or not, or he won't notice if you totally reject it, then why do anything that God commands at all? It's like when parents tell their kids, you know, you see this sometimes, parents will be like, put your shoes on, honey. Kid's like, no. It's like, well, honey, I'm telling you to put your shoes on. No. Well, I'm going to count to three, and then you're going to be in big trouble. One, two, three. No. I'm serious. I'm really going to do something. No. They're like, why doesn't he obey? Like, why should he? There's no risk. There's no benefit. He doesn't lose anything by disobeying. And that's what the fool is thinking. But this is not how God deals with wickedness. Psalm 11, four through seven says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man, meaning he, he looks at them to see, are they wicked or are they righteous? The Lord tests the righteous but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be, their por- shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Now that's good theology, right? That's great theology. God is righteous. He loves righteous deeds and he hates the wicked. Furthermore, that God's eyes do in fact see the wickedness of men. God sees the abominable deeds of the fool. Therefore, destruction shall be the portion of the cup. That's what God is going to serve the wicked. So 
I think, uh, I think this basically just means that, uh, don't be wicked. <laughs> I think that's what David's saying here. The fool lives in this way because he's basing his life on bad theology, on a really poor assumption of who God is and how God works. And this gives birth to corruption and abominable deeds. And as we'll see, ultimately leads to destruction. So don't be wicked, study theology. Put that on a t-shirt, right? What I mean is that knowing what the Bible says and believing that God's word is good and true is helpful in avoiding the mistakes of the fool. Lest you throw away your whole life on a false assumption. And now listen to how David immediately responds to the argument of the fool. The fool believes that God does not see. Here's what David says in verse two. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man. That's all of us. We're all children of man. To see if there are any who understand who seek after God. What does he find? They have all turned aside. Together they become corrupt. The same word he just used to describe the fool. They become rotten, useless. There is none who does good, not even one. So David refutes the argument of the fool. No, 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 God does see. The wickedness of the fool is not hidden from God, but unfortunately for us, that means that neither is our wickedness. Neither is all of our wickedness. Lest any of us hear the psalm as some sort of self-congratulatory hymn about how much better we are than sinners out there, David's gonna shut that fruitless exercise down. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. David pictures God checking in on all of humanity. That's what he means uh, when he says the children of men, the children of man. It's anyone who is a child of the man, Adam, meaning human. And he's looking for those who understand and seek after God. So if, you, if you've ever cooked a turkey, uh, especially cooked a turkey in the oven, uh, maybe some of y'all did uh, last week. Hope it was a happy Thanksgiving. But you can get these cool little pop-up thermometers. And a lot of times they come in the turkey already in there. And uh, they let you know that the turkey's done. When that little button pops out, it tells you that this turkey is, is good. Uh, and by good, I mean not as good as beef, right? And God is a, these pop-up thermometers are sort of a, to me, they're amazing because all you have to do is look in the oven. You do that weird thing that we do when we look inside an oven to try to see what's going on. And you just see as the button popped out, it is, turkey's good, ready to go. And so God's seen here sort of looking through the window of this giant oven at all the turkeys, of all the children of men. And his pop-up thermometer is understanding and seeking after him. He's looking for those who are good, looking for those who have understanding and are seeking after him. He's looking to see if there are any men who do such things. And these two things, understanding and seeking after God, basically refer to obeying the commands of God. That's what those two things in concert, that's what they mean obeying the commands of God. To understand simply means to understand that God has given a law and do it. That's what understand means. And to seek after God means to look to God and say, what was your instruction? Oh, I understand, and you do it. That's basically what these two phrases are meant to communicate. And so having understanding and seeking after God looks like doing what God has commanded. That's the point he's making. It looks like righteous deeds, not abominable ones. It looks like godliness, not corruption. And so God's looking at all of humanity to see if there are any good, to see if there are any who obey his commands. And what does he find? We turn to verse three and it says, they have all turned aside. 
All of humanity, together they become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So he finds the exact opposite of what he's looking for. You know, he, he looks in the oven on Thanksgiving Day, everybody's hungry, and they're like, we want the turkey, is it done yet? And he looks in the oven, expecting oh, maybe to see that button popped up, and what he finds is a blackened mess on fire. It's also rotting, and there's worms in it. That's what he finds. They've all turned aside. Together they become corrupt. There's none who understands, none who seeks after God, none who obeys his commands. So humanity's a bit of a mess, and not one of us does good, not even one. He emphasizes that. So this is what's known as the doctrine of total depravity. That's what David's talking about here, the doctrine of total depravity. Now, I'm not going to do a full breakdown of total depravity, uh, but if that's what you're interested in, we have a a theological equipping class, you know, an hour-long class uh, from about two years ago called Total Depravity, right? So go look at that uh, on our website. You should check that out. But here's what we mean when we say total depravity briefly. We are all sinners. That's what we mean. All of humanity, we're all sinners. Post-fall of man, our nature as humans has been changed so that we are born sinners and we're born enemies of God. We've inherited this, this curse of sin, which makes us, as, uh, as Augustine would categorize it, he would say, uh, non posse, non peccare, which means not able not to sin. We are unable not to sin, meaning all we do, we are, we, we are incapable of doing good and we are totally depraved. That's what David's intending when he says, there is none who does good, not even one. And he could have said that they all do evil. He looks on the children of man, and guess what? They all do evil. But, but that would mean that it's possible for some to do good. No, he says something much more dramatic. He says that there are none who does good, not even one. So anytime you see a human, you say, what are they doing? It's not good. That's what David's saying. Paul actually quotes this psalm in Romans 3 to argue the same thing I'm arguing, that all, whether Jews or Gentiles, that's Paul's context, all are born under this curse of sin, Romans 3, 9 through 12. What then? Are we Jews any better off because they have the covenant and they have this relationship with God? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. And he quotes this psalm. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Not one of us does good apart from the grace given by God himself. Our nature is corrupted. We cannot do good apart from our nature by grace being completely changed in regeneration. So that's the state of humanity today. That's the state of humanity when David wrote this psalm and has been the state of humanity since the fall. I like uh, R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul sums it up well. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We're not declared sinners because we sin. Rather, when you see a human sinning, 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 it's because that's who they are. That is their identity as children of men, apart from the grace of God. We'll get to that at the end. Don't worry. So David responds to the fool saying that God, in fact, does see your wickedness. He sees everyone's wickedness and we are all, all of us are foolish. All of us do abominable deeds. All of us are corrupt and wicked. We are all sinners. 
And I think it's really great how David clarifies this for Israel as they sing this psalm, lest they forget the nature of their covenant with God, as they tended to do. Begin congratulating themselves for being so holy, forgetting that they are, and we are all by nature, apart from God's grace, children of wrath. And so here's what I want us to see in verses two and three. If I haven't made that clear enough, (laughs) we are all sinners, okay? It feels nice to admit that. We're all sinners. We're all fools. We're actually just like the fool because like the fool, we don't understand and we don't seek after God apart from the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. And in the Psalm, David's gonna continue to focus on one particular group of evildoers. But before going any further in that vein, he pauses to remind us of the reality of the state of fallen humanity, including those who belong to the people of God. The reality is this, that we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. That's not the end of the story, because that would be incredibly hopeless, right? This, we step into this Christmas season, you know, beyond the, the lights and the wreaths and the, the carols and the, uh, you know, the wassail or whatever. As we step into this season of hope, we recognize and rejoice in the fact that God has not left us in our sin. God has not left us in our darkness. David reminds us that we are sinners. And here's what that ought to do. Here's the point I'm trying to make. Because we know we're all sinners, it ought to give us compassion for the fool. Because we are all sinners, it ought to give us compassion for the fool. Because if it's true that you, a fool, according to verses two and three, can be given a new heart, that you can be given the status of Christ, who understands and seeks after God perfectly, if we can all be saved, then who are we to write anyone off as if they are without hope? On what grounds could you think so highly of yourself? So just like the fool has a theology problem, which leads to abominable acts, Often we have a theology problem, which leads to unforgiveness and bitterness and a lack of compassion, AKA disobeying the commands of God, just like the fool. It's because we think more highly of ourselves than we ought. So I, I think what David's doing here, these verses serve as this, this cold IV of truth right into your veins, some good theology to counteract all of the false theology that we have. It's meant to overflow in compassion for our neighbor. Or to say another way, compassion for the corrupt and gone astray begins with a heart that confesses, I am corrupt and gone astray. That I'm a sinner, desperately in need of the grace shown to me in Christ. A heart that confesses as Martin Luther did. I love this quote. He says, when Satan tells me I am a sinner, he comforts me immeasurably since Christ died for sinners. Verse four. Have they no knowledge all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. What a weird thing to say. (laughs) David goes back to talking about the specific group of evildoers, the fools that in this cautionary psalm, it's warning us not to imitate. And he starts by asking, have they no knowledge? All the evildoers. I think a better way uh, to translate this, this, this translation is great, but I think a better way would be to say, do they not realize These people not realize. It's almost like David is shocked as if all these evildoers, they ought to know better. Do they not realize? Have they they no understanding? Have they no knowledge? And here's what they don't realize, that they are walking down a path that leads to destruction. That's what they don't see. That's what they don't realize. They say that God doesn't see. In reality, they're the ones that don't see. 
They don't have knowledge. They do not realize that they're walking down a path that leads to destruction, that this is the beginning of the end for the fools. And so every cautionary tale has this thing that the main character does that ultimately leads to their downfall, right? And we're supposed to walk away from the story saying, I know, here's what I learned. I should never do that. That's the one thing I should never do. And so just think about the little boy who cried wolf. He made the mistake of crying wolf when there was actually no wolf. If you don't know the story, he's this shepherd boy. He's this bored shepherd boy. He's like, it's so boring hanging out with all these sheep all day. I need some excitement in my life. So I'll just start pretending that a wolf is coming and attacking my sheep and yell at the village and say, please come help. And that's what they do. They come and they come, they come to help uh, the shepherd. And every time he just laughs at them. And he does it not just once, but a few times. This is one thing, this huge mistake. And as you're watching him do it, you're thinking, what are you doing? Have you no knowledge? One day a wolf could actually show up. Do you not realize what you're, what you're doing? And that's exactly what happens. One day a wolf does show up and he says, help, help, there's a wolf. Ooh. And no one comes to his aid. No one rescues him. They think he's just going to laugh at us again. And so the sheep get killed. The little shepherd boy gets eaten by the wolf too. Again, children's stories. We love them. All right. Don't lie, kids. Can't wait to see that Disney movie. So David's watching the evildoers. They're on this path to destruction. And he's, he's yelling at the movie screen. He's saying, do they not realize? Have they no understanding? Have they no knowledge? And here in verse four is this big mistake that the evildoers are making. David says, they eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. What on earth does that mean? Let's talk about it. Here's here's really all you need to know. These are basically two sides of the same coin, which is, as I've already mentioned, a rejection of God's word. He's just reiterating that they are rejecting God's word. The big mistake of the evildoers is that they reject the word of God. And let's first talk about eating up people like bread. I think songs are better now. I know this is inspired, but what a weird line to come across as you're singing a psalm. David says, they eat up my people, which is just referring to the people of God. That's who he means when he says my people. David is of the, of the people of Israel, and he's saying they eat up my people as they eat bread. And now what on earth does that mean? First off, we have to remember that this is a poem, okay? So David's not actually talking about cannibalism, okay? These evildoers are not actually substituting their bread recipe with people, you know, to make it gluten-free or something. This is just a really intense and poetic way of saying that these evildoers are grossly oppressive. That they are specifically, they're oppressing others for their own gain possibly even to the point of murder. We don't know exactly what they're doing, but with absolutely no care for anyone but themselves. All they care about is their own gain. We see something uh, similar in uh, Micah 3, uh, verse 1 through verse 3. And I said, Hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? Which he's asking, asking, do you not have understanding? Do you have no knowledge? Isn't it your job to know, but you don't know? That's what he's asking. You hate the good and love the evil. You who tear the skin from off my people and the flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. So my parents' little stories aren't that crazy, you know? That's what they told me about Kermit, not too far off from biblical stuff. Micah specifically is speaking to rulers in Israel. And it's possible the subjects of Psalm 14 are also rulers in Israel. I don't know. But the text 
doesn't ever say. So that's not the point. The point is that they're apparently treating others in a way that is contrary to the commands of God. That's the point. They're using people for their own gain with really no care for those who they're using. That's what this, uh, this bread analogy refers to. And so the way that you treat others uh, and the way that they treat other people, they basically reject God. Uh, the reason he uses bread, we don't really have some sort of, we don't use bread like people in the ancient world use bread. They needed it daily for survival. They ate bread every day, every meal, that's what they needed. So I think the closest thing we have in our little McKinney you know, bubble is coffee. You have those shirts that say, but first coffee. You can't get out of the house without drinking coffee. We have two percolators out there that are like a billion cup percolators. And the coffee's like, it's not amazing. I don't even, it's hard, I don't know. Is it good? Uh, I'm not sure, but we drain those things every Sunday. We need it. But we don't think about the beans. They're just made for the garbage. We just need to satisfy our, our, our coffee fix. We just need it to fill our insatiable appetite. And so that's what he's saying about these people, that they, they, they are so corrupt, they just eat, the oppress, they just oppress others with no thought of them, only to satisfy their insatiable appetites. And so they treat others poorly in such a way that rejects the word of God. But also, in the way they relate to the Lord, they reject the word of God. It says that they do not call upon the Lord. And this is an expression we see used in a variety of ways throughout the Old Testament, which basically refers to asking God to provide for a need, to call on God, to ask for help in the midst of your need, to call upon the Lord. And the people of Israel throughout the Old Testament are seen calling upon the Lord so often that really to say that someone calls upon the Lord becomes synonymous for being, having a relationship with God for being under the Mosaic covenant. That's what it means to call upon the Lord. So in other words, to call upon the Lord has this connotation that you're participating in the covenant relationship with God, where he has said, I will be your God and you will be my people, which means that they can call upon God to save them from their enemies, to provide food for them in the desert, or to forgive them of their iniquities. So for example, after the law is given to the people of Israel, representing this covenant God has made with the people of Israel. Deuteronomy 4 says, keep these statutes and do them for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who when they hear all these statutes, all these laws that I've given will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people, people that obey my commands. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? So you see that in calling upon him, this is benefit given only to those who God has covenanted with in his grace. Other nations don't get to call upon him. Only those with whom God in his mercy has made a covenant to be their God and for them to be his people. It says the evildoers do not call upon the Lord They reject this covenant. They say, no thanks, not interested. They reject the word of God by disobeying the commands of God. Because really they think they don't need anything from God. They're like, we got all the bread we need. We don't need anything from God. They think, why be in a relationship where you have to follow all these rules and you have to go to God for forgiveness when instead I can just do what I want and hope that God forgets or isn't actually paying attention. I'll just say there is no God rather than repent for sin, and so they don't call upon the Lord. 
Not only do they say there is no God, but they say, I have no need of him. And they go to illegitimate sources instead to get what they think they need. And it's this rejection of the word of God that manifests itself in the way that they relate to others as well as the way they relate to God. It is this rejection of the word of God that leads to their ultimate destruction. This is the moment in the cautionary tale where where it's helpful to pause and think. This is what we do in all cautionary tales. It's helpful as we see this person making this poor decision, you have to ask yourself, do I walk in the same way as these folks? Cautionary tale isn't very effective if you just don't think it could ever happen to you. If you're just nodding your head along saying, well, good thing that's not me. That's not very effective. That's not really gonna do anything in your heart. So it's important for us to pause and take a brief moment to see ourselves in these evildoers. Because it's so easy to go, they sound so bad. Ooh, yuck, I wouldn't want to hang out with that, that guy. But David's warning you, this psalm's for you. This psalm's for the people of God. It's not for them. He's singing the psalm with believers and the warning is for us. So ask yourself, in what ways do I reject the word of God and how I relate to others? What ways do I reject the word of God and how I relate to others? You may not murder them, but that's really nothing to brag about, right? Well, I'm not a murderer. Okay. What ways do you reject the word of God and how you relate to others? You may not murder, but maybe you gossip about them to puff yourself up. You talk others down so people will think more highly of you. You eat up their reputation like bread so that you can add to your own. Or maybe you refuse to forgive somebody. Someone's wronged you and you, you hold on to bitterness. Because if you forgave them, it would just mean letting them off the hook. You just love to eat up this gospel of grace for yourself, but no one else can have it. You just want to keep it for yourself. What ways do you reject the word of God and how you relate to others? And then ask yourself, in what ways do I reject the word of God and the way I relate to God himself? Meaning, when you sin, which we all do, do you confess your sin to God as he has commanded? Do you repent of your sin and turn from it as he has commanded? Do you call upon the Lord in your need? Do you go to him to satisfy the need that you have, which is salvation from his wrath? Or do you say, surely he's forgotten. God doesn't see. There's people worse than me. There is no God. I had a professor in seminary who would always say, just because you forget about your sin doesn't mean God has. The only sin that God forgets is that which is nailed to the cross. We have this idea sometimes, we'll sin and then we'll just forget about it two weeks later. And his point was, if, that, if you're just hoping that you sin less than other people, if you're hoping you're not that bad of a person, God remembers every one of those sins. The only way to deal with them is to nail them to the cross. But the fool doesn't waste his time. Instead, he deals with his wickedness by saying, there is no God. And he doesn't call upon the Lord. Rather than seeking after God, rather than seeking forgiveness from God, rather than finding refuge in God, the fool continues to trust in his own made-up alternative methods. And that's what leads to his downfall. Look at verses five and six. Starting in verse five. There, There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. The jump from verse four to five is pretty jarring. Two seconds ago, they were big time, self-sufficient, eating all the bread, living life, no need for God, but now they're in great terror. It's like David fast forwards us to the future. 
to see their demise. There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. This all of a sudden turns into this imprecatory psalm, this prayer that God would destroy the enemies of his people. And David pictures his enemies in terror as God comes to judge them, to execute his vengeance on behalf of the generation of the righteous, which is his people. It's another way of saying the people of God, the true people of God, the true people of Israel. And in David's context, it was these righteous people who were most often victimized by the oppressive evildoers. And so David sees this future as if it's happening right before his eyes where instantly all of their bad theology that they built their entire lives on, that God's not going to do anything about it, that there's no God. In an instant, they're confronted with the truth. They feel the same way that the little boy who cried wolf felt when he saw the wolf actually approaching. They're without defense. There's nothing they can do. Remember what we read earlier in Psalm 11. The Lord's in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes do indeed see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. So this is what David has in mind. As he imagines these evildoers in terror, as God defends the generation of the righteous. If you remember back a couple of verses, David actually made it pretty clear that everyone's wicked. And so we have to ask ourselves, who on earth are these righteous people? How can they be called righteous if they are members of the children of man and all the children of man are wicked? How is it that some people are called righteous? And the short answer really is God's mercy. God's mercy. God in his mercy has called a people to himself and they're called the generation of the righteous. He has made a covenant with the people of his choosing and though these people are very much so sinners, he has forgiven their sins. He has put away their sins. Isaiah 53, five through six and then verse 11 says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, meaning Christ, was the chastisement that brought us peace And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. David says, amen. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. And then Romans 5, 17 Paul says, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, meaning because of the sin of Adam, all men are cursed, total depravity, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So the generation of the righteous are those who the Lord has adopted as his own in Christ who repent of their sin, who trust in the Lord for their salvation, those who submit to the commands of God and when they fail to obey them, call upon the Lord for mercy. In other words, the righteous that David's talking about here are not squeaky clean, sinless, do-gooders, Ned Flanders, but rather those who find their salvation and refuge in God, which is why David says, 
You would shame the plans of the poor, talking to the evil doers. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. The righteous have been victimized by these evil doers, and so David leads them in mocking their oppressors. He says, you remember when you guys mocked the righteous and the poor, saying their way of living was foolish? But God is his refuge, and he's a refuge everlasting. How's your refuge? How's that going for you? So these evildoers may appear safe and live lives that appear well fortified, while the righteous seem to just get taken advantage of over and over and over again. But David says this is not how things will ultimately turn out. That's David's point. Another psalmist, uh, Asaph, expands on this point in Psalm 73. I'm going to read a couple of selections from that, starting in verse uh, 3. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Gosh, their life looks so, so much better than mine. He's saying of the righteous that their life is not as great as the, as the prosperity of the wicked. For, their, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Then it says in verse uh, 18, talking to God, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them, the wicked, fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Then it finally says in verse 27, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near to God. It is always good to be near the one who is doing the destroying, lest you be destroyed yourself. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. The wicked may afflict believers now, but this is not how the story ends. Think even of our greatest enemy, the devil, that ancient serpent. We get to say, behold, those who are far from you shall perish, O God. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me it is good to be near to God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. So David's just saying the wicked will not ultimately prosper. No one who rejects the word of God will ultimately prosper. But at the same time, the righteous will suffer at the hands of the wicked which I hope I'm not the one that has to break that to you. you know, I hope that's not news. Surprise! Christianity leads to suffering, but not ultimately. Peter tells us, don't be surprised when we suffer since we claim to follow Christ, who was crucified by evildoers. So if you're living your best life now, like the wicked do, and like they write books about, you're going to hell. Our best life is one that is to come, one that is everlasting. But until then, we find our refuge in him. And so David ends with this prayer, looking forward to that day, to see the destruction of his enemy. Oh, that salvation, this is verse seven, salvation for Israel would come out of Zion, that would come from God. Zion is a symbol of God and his righteousness and his reign. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Here's what he's saying. Come, Lord Jesus, save us from our enemies. And he has this confidence that God will surely do it. So he prays, Lord, please save us from our enemies. Please save us from the evildoers. And Lord, be our refuge. Save us from ourselves. Save us from your wrath. That's how David ends Psalm 14. And that's it. That's Psalm 14. 
The takeaway from the psalm is really nothing complicated. Like I said, it's don't reject the word of God. Like the fool, don't reject the word of God, but rather the gospel, find refuge in God alone. Where the fool says there is no God, the Christian comes to God and says, there is no good apart from you. I bring nothing, I have nothing. There is no good in me, but there certainly is a God who removes my iniquity from me. So we, as we prepare to take communion, I wanna help us walk through this sort of repentance and I'm gonna use a story from the life of David as this example for us of finding our refuge in God, of calling upon God from the depths of our sin and then we'll share in the Lord's supper together. First, let's pray. Lord, we thank you uh, that you have promised salvation. I pray, Lord, if there's, there's any of us who are walking in unrepentant sin, Lord, that we would repent. We would see the value of your word, that we would treasure your word, we would love your commands, and ultimately, God, that you would uh, give us all we need to submit to your lordship, that we would be members of your kingdom, that we would love your kingdom, and that we would love uh, your son who you sent uh, on our behalf to carry our shame, to carry our iniquities. Lord, I pray that we would recognize that it is not our righteousness that draws your attention. When you look, all you see is wickedness apart from Christ. But in Christ, all you see in the life of the believer is perfect righteousness. I pray we would recognize that this morning as we, uh, as we continue to talk about your word and as we take communion. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.